greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. What we've got here is failure to communicate. Open the pod bay doors, Al. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. You dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. What? You'll shoot your eye out, kid. The price is wrong, bitch. 60% of the time, it works every time. That doesn't make sense. Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic, which is going to be a very major focus, I think, here at the beginning of the episode. As always, I'm your host, Patrick. I know I kind of forget to introduce that every time because I just assume everyone who follows me on Twitter remembers who I was on Twitter before transitioning everything over uh, to the podcast. But I'm also, again, joined this week by Leslie as we are going uh, through our uh, watch of Picard as each episode airs. So how's it going, Leslie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Um, so I sent you a, a video this morning um, uh, when I got to the gym because I listened to it before I left the house uh, from a popular YouTuber. Uh, and uh, I'm actually going to mention his name this time. Normally, I don't just for respect out of these guys. And I really do respect this YouTuber. But uh, he, he did a video, and I feel like since this the point of this podcast is trying to prove that you can be a critic without being a, a cynic, without being very overly cynical because of being either jaded or just finding things to want to hate on, um, I, I watched this video and I felt like it was something to kind of address. And I'm, I'm going to, of course, plug his channel and, and probably put a link in the description of the podcast episode because I would recommend checking out uh, Jeremy's videos because he's actually he's very talented. I agree with him on a lot of things, um, but this video in particular, I, I had some issues with. And I know after you watched it, you had some issues with it as well. Um, so yeah. we're going to discuss this a little bit before we get into the actual episode review um, and the title. I'm going to make sure I pull it up right. So I have the right name of the title. Um, I believe, yes, everyone hates Picard. And uh, Jeremy's channel is Geeks and Gamers, very popular YouTube channel. Like I said, he primarily covers Star Wars stuff. He's a big Star Wars fan. Uh, and most of his Star Wars videos I have, for the most part, agreed with him on. Um, but this one in particular, uh, I had issues with. Now, to give him a lot of credit, though, when he starts off his video, he does talk about not being a, uh, a Trek-oriented person. He watched Next Generation with his family as a kid. Uh, he really enjoyed it, loved uh, Picard on the show and, and Sir Patrick Stewart. Um, and that he, of course, also with some other YouTubers, they do their uh, a Friday night uh, tights episode where they talk about current things that are going on uh, in pop culture like Doctor Who, Star Wars, uh, obviously Star Trek. And um, some people in the group wanted him to kind of watch uh, Picard coming from a normie perspective, as, as they like to call it. 
And um, he immediately goes in and starts just talking about all of his complaints about the show, that uh, it's it ruins the character, uh, that they are doing things that don't make sense, that there are things in there that, um, again, not to like offend anyone, but from a social justice warrior perspective, which I think you and I, we've talked about it um, in our first three episode review about how certain things kind of like hit us in the face a little bit but it wasn't enough to really make us uh, dislike the show or what they were doing. Um, And that they were very disrespectful to the Picard character and to the legacy. Uh, And then he kind of goes into an overall branching statement saying that uh, regular Star Trek fans like diehard Star Trek fans like you and I are not liking this show either. And I, I, I disagree with that quite a bit. Um, and yeah. I know you do as well. Um, so go ahead and, and give, give some of your thoughts on that video. Um, I just, I kind of focused in on a couple of things on, on the video. I mean, one of the criticisms he did give was that, you know, dropping the F bombs and cursing isn't a thing in Star Trek. I 100% agree. And I do agree that it takes me out of the scene every time, but I know I've said that on like every review. So I'll just stop and just leave it there. Right. Yeah. You and I are are pretty much on the same, like, I agree with him in that perspective as well on that criticism. But when he's talking about, I think he says, like, every single woman is so disrespectful to Picard on the show. And I have to disagree with that. I don't feel like every single female character on the show has been extremely disrespectful to Picard. And like we were discussing before we recorded, some of them had legitimate reasons to be angry and kind of yell at him. Yes, but, yes. but then some of them, I'm like, I don't understand how this character is disrespectful to Picard. And I had scrolled through a few of the comments. I really didn't get like real, you know, real deep into them. But I did see some kind of like pointing out about how they feel calling Jean-Luc JL is disrespectful. And I was like, well, I think people are really inserting their emotions into something like to say that it's disrespectful because I myself don't like calling him JL. But that does not mean that the character in his reality is being disrespected by Rafi every time she calls him JL. Right. Uh, you know, that's me not agreeing with the writer's choice. Yes, and and I agree as well as we were as we were talking about, um, like you said before recording. And that's in that instance, uh, you know, in in my professional and non-professional life, like I, I kind of go by you know, Patrick or, or Pat in professional or formal situations. I prefer to be called Patrick in informal situations. I don't mind being called Pat, but if I'm in an inverse situation where a person doesn't know that preference, uh, and they, they call me by either one, uh, I don't just immediately go, you're disrespecting me by calling me Pat. And we're in a formal situation, especially if I have respect for that person. So Although Jean-Luc himself may not necessarily like being called uh, JL, he may not allow other people to call him JL, but maybe because of this bond he has with Rafi or this mutual respect he has with Rafi, he allows her to call him that. Like, we all have people who call us nicknames that we may may not necessarily like, but we know that they're not coming from a place of maliciousness. Um, for example, my co-host, normal co-host, uh, Pat, he, uh, when he was younger, he was um, 
very short. So we always always called him either Little Pat or Muggsy after Muggsy Bo, the basketball player. And uh, although someone might take that as a demeaning uh, nickname because of those uh, being kind of extenuating his shortness at, at the time when we were kids, uh, it was never from a place of maliciousness. It was kind of a, from a place of love and respect. And so in that situation, like, yes, you and I both don't like that Rafi calls him JL. It's it's kind of grating on the ears for us. It doesn't sound right. But in in the reality of the show, he does not see it as disrespectful. And he allows her to call it. like if he didn't like it, he would have called her out on it. And then if she continued to call him JL after him, maybe having some sort of outburst, uh, then it would be more disrespectful, in my opinion. Yeah, because like I said, I think people are separating my critique of the writers and I don't like the choice that they went with versus, okay, I'm looking at the reality of the show because his statement was so blanket that it's like every single character in the show is being this way to him no matter what. Right, because even, I mean, you want to look at um, Dodge even in the first episode. She's a woman. Uh, She never treats him disrespectfully. She, in fact, uh, tries to save him early on in in the episode um, and, and it just doesn't work out. And, and so, I mean, yeah, that's like maybe one out of a couple characters, but it, it's not it's not indicative of the show. And, and th- there have just been so many things. Also, he was saying like that there um, what did I think you picked up one about torture, that there was no torture in Star Trek. Yeah, he's like there's torture isn't a Star Trek thing. They've never had torture. And of course, you know, me putting on my Trekkie nerd hat. I was like, um, how about season six, episodes 10 and 11 called The Chain of Command, where Picard is captured by the Cardassians and tortured for an entire episode. It's the one with the famous quote about um, there are four lights. Yes. Yes, absolutely. It's that episode. I'm like, check it out. I was like, yes, it's torture. I was like, but my next thought was, I wonder if he's talking specifically kind of about the effects that go with it. Because if you remember through like Next Generation and Voyager, they don't really show you all of the blood and the squishy stuff and whatnot. And I'm wondering if he's talking more about those effects not really being a part of that and that kind of being different for them. But like I had said before, I think even when we started... Um, special effects changes never really bother me. Right. And I think that also this is, you know, not normal broadcast television. They can get a little bit away with more. Also, practical effects um, are are a little more cheaper um, as time's gone on. And even just doing kind of cheap uh, CGI effects uh, have gotten a little bit um, less inexpensive or less expensive and more inexpensive um, than than it was back when they were originally shooting it. And when they, you know, originally shot those shows in in the 80s and 90s um, and early 2000s, like for television shows themselves, they have very small budgets. That's why when you watch a show like Smallville and it does something where Clark is catching a train, the train looks obviously fake because they can only devote so much money to a television show through 22 episodes of a normal season um, for effects. So it's, it is what it is. And I mean, I, I kind of like the new version of the grittiness a little bit um, in the sense of like, we're especially with the episode we're going to talk about um, when we kind of see more of the dermal re- regeneration for some of the former Borg, it, it um, 
it gives more of a sense of realism to it. Whereas like, as I think we mentioned it uh, in one of the earlier reviews where like how Picard comes out looking pretty much unscathed from his uh, time as Locutus. And now we're seeing all of these other former Borg who have very defined scar tissue and skin grafts um, to cover up implants or to show where their implants were. And they look more kind of monstrous than Picard did. And I think that that's because that's something that they couldn't necessarily have gotten away with um, back when when they did those episodes. Right. Uh, And they'd be having to do his makeup that way for the entire rest of the series. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I just this is kind of uh, the point of contention I have. And again, I got to give Jeremy credit for at least prefacing his video saying that he is a normie. He does not, uh, you know, devour everything Trek or anything like that. His wheelhouse is more star Wars. Um, but at the same time, immediately making blanket statements that all star Trek fans are disliking this. Uh, and I've seen plenty of comments, uh, on Facebook posts and articles that there are people who are, we're, we're never going to be pleased regardless. Um, Picard was never going to completely satisfy everyone after the bad taste that discovery left in people's mouths. And um, so I think if you're someone, especially like me, who, although I I have issues with Star Trek Discovery, there have been moments of um, Star Trek that I've seen in it that I've really appreciated. And although the story I find very lacking and the characters I find very lacking, I can still at least deal with with the show for those Trek moments. But I understand coming from or what really what it should be is if you've come from Discovery and you've dealt with all the uh, two seasons of Discovery and you've gone to Picard, Picard feels more like a breath of fresh air. It's more Trek oriented. It's it's uh, although I've seen a lot of people saying it is destroying canon. I feel um, has been very respectful, uh, especially in this episode of acknowledging canon, of respecting canon, um, of respecting the fans. Although, yes, they've tweaked things like the F-bombs, which I agree uh, have not been uh, something I've really enjoyed about the show. Um, Yeah, most of the people we've seen in power within Starfleet have been women. But again, that doesn't really bother me a whole lot. Um, I, I get it when you're when you're focusing directly on those things that's all your mind is going to see. And he even mentioned uh, in his video that they pepper these things throughout the show. And that's how it should be, in my opinion. If you're going to be pushing any type of political or social uh, agenda, that first off, your focus needs to be on your audience. Who is your audience? What is your audience coming to expect from, from your product? Be respectful of that audience. If you have a message there's a way to subtly work it in your product without overindulging, which I feel like has been a problem with a little bit of Star Wars, um, with the comic book industry, uh, not so much video games, but there have been a little bit of video games and in the film industry. Um, I think one of the biggest hindrances of the Birds of Prey movie was its marketing, and they were trying to market their political agenda where instead of marketing the movie that they were actually releasing. And when we went and saw that in the theaters, we haven't done our review on it yet. Um, I came out of it 
just middle of the road on the movie. There were things I liked about it. There were things I didn't like about it, but I didn't necessarily feel like it was being overly preachy to me. Um, I kind of picked up on some of the moments and, and some of those moments did have like a little bit too much in it um, to go, okay, you're, you're, I can see your agenda, but uh, you didn't focus on it for too long. I would say in Discovery, Discovery has been more pushing its agenda than it's been pushing its stories. Picard, I would say, is the inverse. It has been focusing on its story. It's been focusing on character development. And it's sprinkled things in there like like product should to kind of... And, and Star Trek has always kind of been a progressive show. It's been an ideal version of the world or an ideal vision of the world uh, in the future that we could hopefully attain at some point in, in our in our lives. Um, but it's never been overly preachy in general. And I have not felt like that about Picard. I, I don't know if you have similar thoughts. Yeah, I pretty much I agree with that. And I was just as you were talking, I was just thinking, you know, as an example, when I watched The Expanse, I think that's a good example of having a good mix of the things that they're looking for as far as people wanting to see more women because we always see men or more people of color because we always see white people watch the expanse people yeah Get the, if you think those four first few ep- four episodes are so boring force yourself through them and then continue to watch we have men and women some of who are whom are good and some of whom are evil we have people of every race creed color that you want to see and it's a good diverse mix i think what picard is trying to do is kind of aim for that same level of a good mix you know of trying to show everybody well it's not just you know white men who are admirals in starfleet there's here's these women but they've gone so far because they're trying to show us that that they've really only shown us the women they haven't shown us any of the other men you know yeah yeah um and i mean and even that you look at okay in positions of power we've seen primarily women in those roles okay but if you look at even just the crew on the the uh, la serena it's very evenly balanced. I think you have yeah. a nice balance of men and women on, on the uh, crew and just in the other characters of the, the focus of the story is a nice balance of men and women. So I don't ever feel like it's, it's overly uh, pushing one uh, gender over the other. It, it just, uh, it, it's kind of, found a a fairly nice balance it's a little rough i think but like you said it's trying to aspire to what the expanse has done i think it's it's using the expanse as kind of a guidepost uh without just straight up copying the expanse on how they deal with their characters and how they tell their story um although i would say because that's another complaint that uh some people have and and jeremy again to give him a little bit of credit he's only watched the first three episodes so he has not caught up to episode six. So maybe his opinion on it changes. Uh, again, he's coming from that, from that kind of normie perspective. And maybe, uh, if he watches those other episodes, his opinion will change a little bit, but, um, I'm trying to think of where I was going to go with that. Uh, it's, uh, people complain about the pacing of, of Picard, that it's, uh, it's dragging, that it's, uh, it's not going anywhere, that they're rehashing the same story bits, uh, for each episode. But 
it's very much doing what you were talking about with The Expanse, where people find those kind of first four or five episodes of The Expanse of the first season to be very slow and, and dragging, which I remember when I was watching it when it was airing on Sci-Fi and I watched week to week, it did feel a little bit that way. But then uh, once the second, kind of the second half of that season kicked in, it went in... Uh, it went into overdrive kind Full of throttle. Yeah. yeah it, it just like, it took you through the end. And then when, um, I was revisiting it and getting all caught up, uh, to be ready for when season four launched, um, I burned through those first four or five episodes, uh, kind of back to back. And you know me, I don't really binge watch much anymore. Um, unless like a show really envelops me in. And I think like that might have been the problem, at least for The Expanse when it was airing on Netflix. Like the if you were watching sci-fi. it, from, yeah, or sci-fi, not Netflix. Well, I'm all over the place. Um, <laughs> but the uh, watching that from week to week on sci-fi was what probably hurt it a little bit in the beginning. And then the later seasons did fine. But when it got to, uh, you know, Amazon Prime, uh, I think people kind of were able to then once they were like, oh, I can now watch all 10 episodes uh, of the season straight through. Uh, they don't feel that kind of dragging pace. And maybe, again, that's part, part of the problem with Picard uh, is that we are only getting an episode a week. And people who are so invested in the binge watching format, um, they can't deal with the slow pacing, which it's kind of hard for me to fathom if you stuck with Game of Thrones for eight seasons, regardless <laughs> of how you feel about season, the last couple seasons. Um, those are very slow paced shows as well that really by the end of their season, everything that they've set up, they've have culminated into uh, the whole season. Like it's it's made sense. And I feel like that's what Picard has been doing. It's it's taking its time to tell its story, whether you like the story or not it's at least fleshing out these characters and making them three dimensional and making you understand their motivations, which has been a big failing for discovery. So, um, that's all I really have to kind of say about his video. Uh, again, like I feel like it's fine to have these criticisms. Like you want to point out that you don't like that. All the, the people in power have been women and that they've been disrespectful to Picard. Okay. That's fine. Like you're, you're right to have, and, I also want to say I'm not trying to invalidate Jeremy's opinion either. He is right to have that opinion and he's formed it how he's formed it. But I'm also going to kind of criticize that a little bit. Um, but when you're you can point that out, you can point out the the F bombs and I'm not going to disagree with you. You can point out what you think are its shortcomings. But you can't tell me that there at least isn't something that you might enjoy about the show um, whether it's uh, Sir Patrick Stewart's performance, whether it's the effects, whether it's any of the other characters that are part of the mainline cast. You, you can't tell me you haven't found anything that you've liked about that. Um, and that's kind of, again, going to the point of the podcast. It, it's I, I'm tired of people who go openly out there and will just rip something apart, either because they have their own personal uh, beliefs about how things should be, or, uh, they have their own kind of agenda that they want to see on the screen that they're not seeing on the screen. And so therefore, if it's not pushing that agenda, then therefore it's trash. Um, I, I think that that's wrong. And I'll, I'll make one kind of final point before we get into the review and I'll get off my uh, soapbox. Uh, 
the House of the Dead movies, and I know you're not a horror fan, so this is right. uh, you're not going to have much to say about this. But uh, the the first one, of course, is directed by the infamous Uwe Boll, who is an awful director. I will never say that that man can direct a good movie. Um, but the House of the Dead movie uh, is an adaptation of a video game that I was a huge fan of. I played it in the arcades all the time. And um, so when the movie came out in the early 2000s, uh, I was excited for it. And I watched it and I, I, I liked it because, of course, again, I was in my early teens. So I really didn't have a defined taste of what I really liked and what I didn't like. I'm also a horror fan, so I have a lot of leeway for what I like as good horror versus what I dislike as bad horror. And uh, I actually, I think I just bought it on digital recently. I bought it and its sequel. And I can sit there and I can watch that movie now as a 31-year-old adult and go, yeah, this is kind of garbage. The acting's awful. The effects are awful. Uh, the the acting is awful. Uh, the camera work is awful. The story is, is garbage. But by darn it, there is something I can still enjoy about this movie that I can rewatch it. And I and I don't like the director at all. And it's in it. And its sequel, which was made straight for TV for sci fi, uh, is a little bit better on, on the story. But again, it's it is not great acting. It's not great effects. It's not a really a great story. But I can still enjoy both of those equally and still point out what I dislike about them and go, yeah, it fails on these levels, but there's a sense of enjoyment that I can still attain from them. And so I don't like it when, uh, people can go out there and, and this is kind of my problem with Rotten Tomatoes, although I want to become a member of Rotten Tomatoes to kind of try to maybe fix the system from within if I can. Um, when you slap on an arbitrary number of a hundred percent or 50% or 20% or 10% or 4%, you are giving someone who maybe doesn't approach film criticism from the same way that I do, or that you do an idea that, well, because this says 4% on rotten tomatoes, there is nothing I can enjoy about this movie. And therefore you are in a sense, invalidating everyone's hard work on it. Um, and I, I don't like that because when you say it's 4%, it's an awful garbage movie. People are less inclined, if it's a theatrical release, to go out and spend money on that film. Therefore, the people that worked on that film are, are yes, they might get paid through their unions and they might get paid uh, whatever their basic fee is for doing, uh, you know, gaffing or camera work or uh, set building, set design. Uh, but I know like for the actors, actors kind of get paid more on the back end. They get it on from the ticket sales and from residuals and, and royalties. Um, but people's lives are kind of affected by by this sense of film criticism or even TV show criticism in the sense that they uh, are saying, don't go out and see this product because then you're de depriving that product from making any type of money. Now, you can say, I personally will not go see this movie because I don't like X, Y, and Z. Uh, there are plenty of movies that I will do that with. Uh, but even when I worked at the movie theater, I had a very good gauge of my, uh, my regular customers that would come in and what they liked and what they didn't like. And they would come to me and go, well, we're thinking of seeing this movie. What do you think? And based on what I knew their personal viewing experience was like or what they normally watched, 
I could recommend them. Yeah, I might not like it, but I think you guys would like it because I know what type of films you like. So that's kind of the problem that I see with film criticism nowadays and even just fan criticism. You know, people will come out and probably say because we've done this and we've been fairly positive about uh, Star Trek Picard that we might be CBS shills or that we might just... Uh, you know, not actually have any real independent thought about the product we, we are watching. But, and, and there are people that are out there that do that. So don't get me wrong. There are people who just do it to try to get access to things. But we're not being paid. We're not being financed. We're not being asked. We're not an official podcast for, for CBS. <laughs> right. So we are coming at this from a perspective where we're not making any money off this. You know, we're not being paid to speak, uh, you know, good things about a show that we might actually despise. Uh, and so I, I think that if someone comes at us and just attacks, attacks that idea, they're immediately going to launch those scenes on it without actually understanding where we're coming at from criticism, from a criticism perspective. And that's where the cynics part kind of really rears its ugly head. And, uh, I, I well, that's just... how you get criticisms, you know, from the people who did the work of saying that there's toxic fandoms exactly. or toxic critics and things. And it's kind of, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, Yes. you know, because they're just constantly making this shout of, you know, a constant shout of negativity. That's why, you know, I only really follow like three YouTubers that I like to watch and all of them are pretty balanced in their reviews of stuff. And I've disagreed with them and I've really agreed with them and cheered with them, but I don't really, I don't go for any of those channels that are just constantly trashing on things, constantly negative. It seems like they never have anything positive to say about literally anything, even, you know, including life, not just movies and TV. (laughs) Yes. And, and you, and that's a very, very good point. Um, cause one of the other ones that, uh, we've not mentioned his name, just kind of, again, it's out of respect more than just like not wanting to just try to launch anybody towards his channel to attack him or anything like that. But there was one that we came across, uh, that I came across, uh, when, when it was dealing with, um, Doctor Who and, and a little bit of discovery. And because uh, he was also talking about a lawsuit that was going on with CBS and, and uh, Anas Abdeen about his um, kind of video game that he was working on and whether or not that they had taken some of his ideas and incorporated it into discovery. And those were very good, informative videos. Uh, they weren't overly negative, but I mean, they were being very critical of CBS and what they had done and, and critical of discovery. But then it became every video he was releasing, everything he was talking about was negative this, negative that, negative this, negative that. Nothing um, that except for maybe a few things like probably I'm sure his review of Joker was was glowing, uh, which I mean, that movie deserves a glowing review. It's a very good movie. Uh, but any other movie that he's come out and, and watched, um, I, just to give an example, since I've already mentioned it, Birds of Prey, he talked about Birds of Prey and he just immediately trashed everything about it. Couldn't find any sense of enjoyment whatsoever. And although I didn't kind of like how they formatted the story for Birds of Prey, and I don't like that some characters kind of took a backseat and, um, that I feel like it should have been more of a Harley movie and, and not introduce the Birds of Prey at all in it. I still had moments of enjoyment. I liked the soundtrack. I liked the action scenes, which was one of the things he didn't like. 
Um, I liked kind of the story. And uh, yeah, I understand they changed some, I guess, story elements about what Black Mask is actually after. But in all honesty, I'm glad they did, because if it had been what they originally intended, I wouldn't have really cared for that. So it's uh, there is this thing that, you know, some compromise is, is necessary and I think it's a kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy because you have these creators who come out and attack fans and then you have fans who come out and attack creators. And really the real victims are the creators and the fans who just want to enjoy. Um, I mean, yes, to also pick out some things that they that they find inconsistent or that they are, are critical of, but can still enjoy and creators who still want to create that product for them. Uh, for the sake of the fans. And I feel like there's a sense, like you said, toxic, ma- uh, to- toxic masculinity, toxic <laughs> fandom has uh, been a term I don't really like. But when we do see these constant videos of they destroyed Seven of Nine's character, they're destroying Picard's character, they're destroying the uh, Gene Roddenberry's legacy. Uh, I don't find that to be very true. And you're and you're leaning into that like you're almost proud to have them title you or label you as a toxic fandom. And I don't think that that's beneficial to anyone, to the fans, to the creators, whether it be Star Wars, Star Trek, um, DC movies, Marvel movies. Uh, as, as much as I'm a fan of the Marvel movies, there have been some hits and misses on it, but that doesn't mean that Marvel is completely ruined for me. Uh, depending on how they do their next brand of films, that might be a whole complete different subject, but um, there, there's got to be a give and take and not just an obstinate wall that says I am digging my heels in on these kind of weird morals or weird beliefs And then you have the other side that's digging their heels in with the same thing. And then you're just constantly clashing because in all reality, at that point, we as the fans in general all lose. So, yeah. And even one of the writing groups that I'm on on Facebook, there have been multiple posts where the authors are like, I kind of want to do this, but I think everyone will hate it. What do you think? So there are creators out there who are afraid to actually write something because they don't want to get into this whole mess. And that's understandable. I mean, it it really is. And that's why I hope that this podcast can kind of be more beneficial to everyone in the sense of, well, let's approach it from. uh, Yeah, I might like 95 percent of everything I watch um, and, and without kind of finding real flaws in them. But at the same time, I, I can be critical of stuff uh, and and I can find movies that I, I really didn't like. I uh, can't really name one right off the top of my head right now. But um, I mean, I but I still own movies uh, that even if I, I had issues with it, I own Ghostbusters 2016, even though I wasn't a huge fan of it. I thought it was just an OK film. I own all seven Resident Evil movies and most of those are garbage films, but I enjoy them to an extent. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's to this, to this thing that you've got to be so wary of what you're either saying, what you're writing, what you're putting out there, uh, and offending someone or having, uh, some type of backlash. And hopefully people can listen to this show and, and appreciate kind of where we are coming from, from our perspectives. We're not always going to like whatever we watch, uh, although we're, 
massively enjoying uh, Star Trek Picard. I think we've been critical on some things that we didn't like about it as well. And um, I, I'm trying to think there was one movie uh, I reviewed recently or not recently, but within the past couple episodes where I even gave it like a 2.5 out of five. And I don't really like to go under three. So, you know, if I'm getting down in the twos, there's something about that film that really didn't sit well with me. And so I, I'm just hoping that everyone kind of appreciates that, understands where we're coming from. Uh, this wasn't meant to be kind of mean to Jeremy or to try to attack Jeremy or try to take him down a notch. It was just trying to maybe point out some flaws in his own argument or in his own statements. And uh, again, I'm going to promote his channel in the description because I, I do think he does good content. Uh, I don't think he's completely always negative. He does have a bit of a negative side, but mainly in his criticisms towards Kathleen Kennedy and Star Wars, which are not completely unwarranted. So I'm very sorry for this long diatribe. I think I went <laughs> longer than I really intended to. So if you guys have stuck around this long, we're going to now start getting into our review of episode six of Star Trek Picard. Um, so uh, hopefully we haven't lost anyone out at this point, but all right, we're going to go ahead and start here. And uh, so the title of this episode is the impossible box. Um, the premise of it is Picard and the crew track Soji to the Borg cube in Romulan space, resurfacing haunting memories for Picard. Meanwhile, Narek believes he finally found a way to safely exploit Soji for information. And, um, overall, I thought this was a very interesting episode. Um, the the opening of it, uh, I kind of wasn't sure, and I wrote both of these down, uh, if it's a dream. Of course, it's a young Soji. Uh, I wasn't sure at first until I saw the necklace around around her neck. Um, but she's kind of walking in. It's a kind of a stormy night. Uh, I, I want to ask you this, because I, I don't know if this was like a little Easter egg or not. Um, her little stuffed animal, have we seen that before? Um, I, we have seen stuffed animals before, but not, not one exactly like that. Okay. I couldn't remember if I'd remembered that from like something from like next generation or from like deep space nine. Uh, it, it just seemed a little familiar uh, and I wasn't in sure. The, in that, uh, disaster episode when Picard is trapped with those kids, mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's towards the end of that episode when they come back to say like, thank you for, you know, making us not feel scared and things. The, the little girl has a little stuffed animal. Okay. Okay. It, it just, it, it seemed a little familiar, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Um, so, uh, we find out it's kind of a constant dream that's been going on a little bit now. Uh, she's of course in bed with Narek. Um, he inquires about the dream, says that Soji's kind of full of, of secrets. Um, and then I, I kind of like, I think this was a line cause I wrote it down everyone is hiding something, whether they know it or not. And I, yeah. I, I kind of like that because it, it's, uh, it wasn't, it was directed towards Soji, but I felt it was very revealing about Narek himself, especially later on in the episode, near the end of, of the episode. This was also, um, one of, I think the longest episode we've had so far. It's, it runs about 54 minutes. So I was a little surprised when I was starting. I was like, Oh, I was expecting about 44 minutes. Um, so then we're back on the La Serena, um, and Girardi is sitting with, with Picard and she's explaining about how Maddox passed. 
And no EMH explanation. Sorry, I just had to put it in there. <laughs> no, I, I was immediately thinking about that, too, when the scene came on and she's explaining about, oh, well, the trauma he he faced. And um, I I don't buy it. it. It was this is a part that, again, we were kind of talking about. I'm not going to completely praise Picard on everything. I felt like this was a very missed opportunity. Also a very poorly written explanation as to why Maddox passed. Oh, he just faced too much trauma and it wasn't enough. Although he was stable, he he just couldn't deal with it anymore. And that just, if I were Picard knowing how, you know, how well Starfleet technology is or Federation technology is, uh, knowing how good of a doctor like, Dr. Crusher was on the Enterprise, how good uh, EMHs are. None of that would have sat well with me if I were him. What do you think? I just, I didn't, I I pretty much agree with that whole sequence. I also didn't feel like the actress playing Agnes really put forth that, I feel like she should have looked far more upset than she did. Yeah. They're struggling to not look upset. Yeah. There, there was a, a lack of believability uh, in it. I mean, there, it, yeah. there's a scene later on with her and Rios that feels more believable than this scene. Um, it, it, there was, though I hate that scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you hate that scene. I kind of liked it, but well, uh, there's pieces of it that I like and pieces of it that I really hate. <laughs> well, I, I, cause she's not, you would think she would be kind of in tears. Uh, I mean, we, we had it revealed in the last episode that they were a couple and that they were, uh, very intimate and, and connected that losing her partner this way, regardless on the, the fact that she actually caused it, she would be more kind of how she was when she was killing him. Tears. Right, that's the level of acting I expected from her at yeah. that point. At this point, when she's talking to Picard, and we didn't get that. Yeah, she's more calm and collected, and just trying to explain it. And it, it just it, this scene didn't quite really work for me. Um, and then we're. Uh, and I'm apologizing because my notes prior are not the best as they were uh, for some of these prior episodes. Uh, they're talking about the Borg cube and it's the abandoned Borg cube, um, which I uh, I thought was a weird phrase. Did you pick that up? Yeah, it was it was abandoned by the Borg because they had a sub matrix collapse. So it's like I guess they were cutting it away. OK, that makes more sense. That makes more sense to me now. I, I just I wasn't thinking about that, that collapse that they would kind of cut it off like a, a, a limb, like a gangrenous limb. Um, okay. That, that makes more sense to me now. Cause I was just like, what, how is it abandoned? But, um, mm-hmm. now this was also something I think that, uh, I mentioned that I saw an article. I didn't really fully read the article, but it was, I guess, uh, explaining that later on, this kind of fixes the, an issue that people have had with first contact. And I guess that that was P- Picard's hatred for the Borg, uh, where he kind of like the, famous line from first contact is like, he's basically Ahab. Um, but I picked up in this scene when they're talking about it, that his hatred for the Borg is still strong. Um, which to me almost kind of felt like, I I guess it doesn't really invalidate first contact because he never, the only thing he does is he comes to acceptance of sacrificing his ship versus trying to take them all down one by one. Um, but also, during this conversation, uh, I guess this is all still in the same conversation for um, 
Girardi explained about how Maddox passed away. Elnor has picked something up with how Girardi was in that conversation. So maybe the lack of emotion, uh, the lack of maybe believability was intended. Maybe it was meant to be more subtle than what you and I picked up on so that it would be enough for Elnor to kind of be like, why aren't you more emotional? Um, I, I, I don't know, but we have Picard go back into his, uh, holodeck ready room. And, uh, this I thought was interesting and also awesome at the same time. So he runs a search for the artifact treaty and the Borg. The only thing of those three things that I'm not sure about, but I think it, I think I understand it is treaty. And I'm assuming that, uh, it was a treaty reached between the Federation and the Romulans for the Romulans to have control over the Borg cube. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, but I think it's also involves the the Borg that are on the cube. Like, yeah, I guess we're going to let you stay here. Yeah, because like even Hugh mentions on later on in the episode that like they they have really no place to go, um, that they are all viewed as monsters. And uh, so they're not really kind of accepted as Federation citizens. So that that would also make sense. But there were some great throwbacks I liked in this. The uh, we saw images from First Contact. We saw images from uh, the next generation. We saw the old version of Hugh uh, when he was all with his Borg uh, um, attachments. Implants. Uh, implants. Yeah. That's that's what was the word I was looking for. Um, and then the mirror image of him and Locutus. Like, oh, I loved that scene. That was so well done. Uh, I, I just was like, oh, it gave me chills. Like, again, this is where I'm like, you can't find it. And I got to understand in Jeremy's perspective, he hasn't gotten up to that episode yet. But that moment right there was just chilling for me. It was so. I was very impressed with that shot. Yeah, yeah. They they did it so well. And it and because that that has been something that has haunted Picard ever since that happened. And since we are dealing with the Borg this season and everything, like this is definitely an underlying uh, issue for him. And again, this goes to them taking their time, telling the story and building this up. And now we're getting to the point where these characters are converging and we have Picard understanding that she's on a Borg cube prior to that. He didn't know anything was going to be involving the Borg. We knew only because we're seeing everything also on Soji's perspective. Um, so we knew that something was going to happen when Picard was aware of that. And we got a really good moment, uh, I think, from that scene. Um, so I like this that the La Serena arrives at the former neutral zone, but it's still the neutral zone. You know, because like they're they're like, yeah, we really can't quite enter this space a whole lot uh, without starting a war. So I don't know why it's not the like new neutral zone or something like that. Um, but here's the here's that scene uh, that we were kind of talking about. But I, I, I did this note. Um, first off, I love that Rios plays soccer because that's like the only sport I actually love. Uh, he has scars, plenty of scars. And this kind of goes back to what I was talking about in, uh, I believe, episode two, that he uh, does not do the dermal regeneration because he wants to remember each and every one of those scars. So we don't know what, like where or how he got those scars, but they each probably hold some 
story or memory that he does not want to let go of, whether it's for self-torture or just uh, honoring other people. But I, I really liked seeing that there because that kind of played into my um, my theory about that from episode two. Um, but Agnes kind of shows up again. And I don't remember. And maybe you do. If I brought this up, I know I had it, I think, in my notes uh, for the, I think it was the free cloud episode, um, that Agnes and Rios kind of had a moment, uh, in that episode that kind of made me think, okay, they're kind of trying to explore maybe some romanticism between the two, but also the Bruce Maddox thing kind of complicated a little bit of that. Uh, but we're seeing a kind of a payoff on that, uh, connection there. And, um, you know, she's talking about, how she's kind of um, haunted by some things. And I wrote down trauma over killing Maddox and this, they have this kind of connection. They have, they have a kiss. um, And he of course wants to, you know, get jiggy with it. Uh, And uh, she kind of pulls away a little bit. Doesn't really want to, uh, cause she knows she is going to be making a mistake, but yet it still happens. So you you said you didn't quite like this scene. So well, well, I I like the interaction they have. I do like you know when she's telling him you know I feel all of these haunted emotions and things like that. It's the sex part of it that I don't like because I'm like you just murdered your <laughs> ex yesterday. Yeah like, okay yeah I know? can see coming from that yeah you're yeah you're kind of right pointing that out. <laughs> I'm just I'm just watching. I'm like I can see yeah Rios maybe kind of being like let's do it and kind of suggesting it but you even know that you're making the mistake while you're do you know, in the process of it. And then you go through with it. And that just frustrates me so much. So maybe it's just a frustration with the character and not really the writing, but I was just like, come on, yeah. come on. Yeah, it is. A, it's a and little too soon. how long have they soon. been on the ship together? Has it been like, like a few weeks? Has it been like a month? Like how long have they gotten to know each other on this ship? Actually, you know, there, I will say there is probably an inconsistent timeline or maybe it would depend on the, how the events that are taking place on the board cube line up with the events that have been happening, uh, on the La Serena and everything, because, uh, I would go, it's probably been maybe at least a month, but, when he's on the when Picard uh, kind of jumping ahead here, when Picard's on the board cube talking to Hugh, he Hugh mentions that Narek has only shown up like two weeks ago and has entered in that kind of relationship with Soji. So I don't feel like they've been traveling for just two weeks unless I mean, I guess maybe if they're going like warp nine, that might <laughs> Uh, you know, makes sense. But I, I feel like they have been in space longer than what we've been seeing the Borg cube stuff on. So I, I, I don't know. Um, well, right before that, we get kind of a good look of the outside of the Lost Serena. Did yeah. you like write anything down about that? Or uh, I didn't. Did you, you did you pick something up on that? No, I just kind of paused it when I was watching it the second time and just kind of looked at it. And I didn't really feel like it looked that impressive, like when I first saw the Enterprise D or anything like that. Yeah, it's I mean, for for a ship like I I love all of the the Federation starships, like I like all the different designs. Uh, I have one of the one of the computer games that I haven't played in for a while. But all all I love doing down there is getting all the different ships and and, uh, doing all the different space battle missions and uh, it's it's definitely 
a, a dinkier ship in the sense like it's <laughs> it's small. It's it's not very big. Uh, it's got a weird design. Um, I mean, I kind of like the the two prong forward design uh, for the nacelles and everything. Um, but it, I mean, if you're going into combat, it's not probably going to be one of the best ships. Now, I kind of get the idea that Rios is. Like we said, he's kind of like a Han Solo type character. I think that that's their intent with him. Um, so he's probably not doing things on the up and up. So he would need kind of a small maneuverable ship with some offensive capabilities, but more having the capabilities of uh, getting away quicker than actually going into a headlong fight. Um, so I'm thinking maybe... Uh, that's why it looks less impressive design wise. Like, I think the interiors are probably more impressive than the exterior. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, yeah I didn't really have any notes on that. But, um, yeah, it, it does seem with her facing kind of that trauma over Kelly Maddox, like she's kind of it's a little bit of a too soon type moment for her. Yes. <laughs> um, so now we kind of jump back to the board cube. Uh, we have Rizzo playing uh, with Narek's box. Um and uh, Narek is kind of filling her in on Soji's dream. Again, I, I don't get why uh, Rizzo is so kind of ambivalent towards this plan, especially when we get to like the culmination of this episode, uh, because she's so and maybe it's her arrogance. And this is where I would think, like, maybe this would be something that Jeremy would would appreciate, because this is kind of showing a, a woman character, a female character being overly arrogant and thinking uh, she is she has everything right. She knows what to do better than her brother. And it's really Narek's, um approach that is actually the appropriate and one that produces results. So he yeah, ends up, I just kind of jotted down like he knows what he's doing and she needs to get punched in the face. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and she and she's intentionally written to be an unlikable character. So I did finally pick up that I didn't notice this in the other episodes, but she has the ear piece as well. Um, I never saw it in any of the other episodes except for this one. So I don't know if that was something missed. Uh, but we did kind of find out later on uh, that that actually does act like a comms unit, because I, I remember seeing Narek press on it to say something to other uh, Romulans on the on the board cube. So at least we know what function that kind of serves now. Um, now, the other thing I kind of had with this scene was uh, the um, homeworld. Now. I mean, I guess it would be a home world if they were created on that world, but these aren't um, natural born beings. So they wouldn't technically have a home world more. They would have a lab they were created in. So uh, you have any feelings on that? No, I think they were just using that as a reference to where are all the rest of them. Okay. Uh, yeah, it just like it just it it struck me as just a little weird to be calling it that. But I again, I can understand, like, I guess if you're created on uh, even as a robot, you're created on Utopia Planitia, Utopia Planitia on Mars would be your home world. So, right. I also have a guess of what planet I think it is. I can't remember the exact name of it, but it is the planet where Dr. Noonien Singh brought data and lore together. Because See, that planet was having constant electrical storms. We never saw if it had moons right. in the next generation. But I kind of wondered it, maybe if it's that planet. And, you know, uh, I didn't necessarily think about that. Uh, but you, when you say it, it would make 
um, since because, you know, where when Maddox, before he passed away, he was said like, you know, Soong and I did it. It would make complete sense that he would have gone to like Soong's former laboratory and uh, used whatever tools, resources uh, that he could to, uh, you know, use it because it would be kind of like a a muse for him, like a a, a motivation for creation and stuff. Um, And with I guess I can't remember is the crystal entity that's been destroyed, right? Yes. Yeah. So you have. And that was a different planet. This is the planet where he came to to escape the crystal entity. Okay. Okay. Well, that could. Yeah. Okay. Now that's right. That would work. That would still work, too, uh, as long as you don't have that crystal entity there to worry about. Um, Yeah, that would make that still makes complete sense. So uh, it's a very good point to pick up on. I didn't quite catch that. Um, And so now um, they, of course, like the Quat Malat way to uh, try to get onto the Borg cube. They are just going to be open and inform uh, the leaders to get on the cube. But they need to get... uh, kind of diplomatic credentials for Picard uh, to get on there without causing it a, a war. And so we have um, an inebriated Rafi who has completely fallen off the wagon uh, after her <laughs> interaction with her son, which, I mean, I guess it's not out of character for her. Um, some people might not like that. I, I, I hate to see her do that because I felt like she came a far way uh, from where we met her in episode two and three to now, but it makes sense after having kind of that disastrous, uh, reunion with your son who still really doesn't want you to do anything with his life, with his, uh, child on the way with his wife, uh, not to really be involved that she would immediately fall back to the things that offered her comfort after she was, uh, let go from Starfleet. Yeah. Um, so she, um, contacts someone, in Starfleet, a former friend, Emmy, who I think is just a captain. I, I, I think there were four pips on her um, on her uniform. And uh, I, I kind of like this scene because it was kind of like a it was a very Rafi scene. Like, again, if they hadn't done such a, a good job of establishing Rafi's character, this scene probably wouldn't worked worked as well as it did because she's doing this with kind of Picard on the side where, you know, no one can kind of see him from her, the view screen, uh, you know, talking about how Picard wants, you know, this kind of credentials thing. And, Oh, by the way, we're three hours away from the board cube. So, you know, it's, <laughs> and then she kind of does this, you know, little taking, uh, Jean-Luc down a peg and, and whatnot. Um, it was just a fun little scene and, and it worked out, played out very well. Uh, do you have any particular thoughts on that? No, I, I thought it was very, very good. But now that we've had this discussion prior, I'm like, oh, no, everybody's going to say, look how disrespectful she's being. But it's it's to the point of they're they're getting something. And he's right there. Right. Like, and, he knows. He even he even applauds her afterwards because it's like, yeah. you know, whether or not she was being I mean, I'm sure there was an ounce of truth in some of the words she was being kind of disrespectful in. But it was still also being in a way to kind of manipulate Emmy into getting these credentials for him. And he just looks at it as a performance. And, you know, again, if he really felt disrespected, he would be like, Hey, I, I'm going to take you down a peg now. Like, cause Picard is always kind of 
um, commanded that type of presence and that type of respect. And we also know that she's, you know, she's doing her vape thing again of the snake root or whatever that was. Uh, she's drinking bourbon or whiskey. So the fact that she was even able to make herself look sober on the screen uh, was enough of an act that even Picard can be like, OK, I, I have to give you props for that. Like because he even does kind of do a little look when she says something uh, about him. But he he's all it. he's all ego and id. Yeah. yeah. And, and he but he takes it in good kind because also like any valid criticism, if it's a valid criticism, you can acknowledge it. You can go, yeah, <laughs> I, I don't like this about me, but you're not wrong. So uh, I didn't feel like it was, again, op- openly uh, disrespectful. So uh, we go back to the board cube. Soji is telling Eric she had the dream again. Uh, and that she uh, tried to tell the AI uh, mom about it, um, but she falls asleep again. And so he informs her, again, he's planting those seeds of doubt inside of her, that every call she has to her mother lasts only 70 seconds. So this, again, is putting something in Soji's mind like, what is really going on here? And I need to find out. And again, it's showing that subtle subtleness that, Narek's plan has been all about uh, to get her to uncover who she might actually be. Um, uh, see, let, I like his plan. I think he's very smart. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. And that's, and that it goes again to like, you know, it's, it's one thing to kind of go in uh, guns blazing and another kind of like, it's, it's the uh, shoot first, ask questions later type thing that, you know, that's what Rizzo did. And this is kind of, okay, we're going to ask questions first and then maybe shoot later. Um, <laughs> we're back on the La Serena and uh, Rios is helping Rafi get back to her quarters. Uh, she's just really reeling from, uh, from meeting her son uh, and, and, you know, explaining to Rios about uh, Gabriel and, how he doesn't want anything to do with her and how it really hurts her. And I really, I really liked this line. Um, Rios, you know, says no one gets all of it right, Rafi. And that is so true. I mean, just in real life and, and just, and even, I think that this is also not intentionally, but maybe an acknowledgement to the fans that, uh, we don't we don't get it all right. We, we, we're trying. We want we want to do something good for you, but we're going to make mistakes. And that's in any type of programming, podcasting, books, video games, just human condition in of itself. It's so true. We don't get all of it right. So no one is perfect. No one is going to have this complete uh, spectacle of a hundred percent cleanliness. And we've even seen it with Picard. Like Picard has made mistakes next generation. And even in this show, um, and in the movies, like it is a, tr- a line that I found to be so true just in general. And, uh, I, r- I really like that bit of writing. Um, so we go back again, there's a little bit of jumping around, but I didn't find it really a wholly, a lot of disorienting, uh, but we have Soji now calling her mom. Uh, she starts to fall asleep, but she fights it. Uh, but again, still ends up falling back asleep. Like she even stabs herself in the hand and works for a couple seconds, but then is knocked out. And we even see kind of the AI mom glitch a little bit. And I don't know if that was just coming from her 
dream or if it was actually glitching. Um, I felt it was more like her dream state when she was fighting because she's trying to stay awake, you know? Yeah, I, I would I would agree. I, I think like it was maybe a little bit of a mixture of both, um, because especially when she when she stabs herself, I think is when it feels like it happens more. And since she's kind of caused herself self-harm, uh, the programming is trying to account or uh, correct. Um, so Picard gets the credentials to get on board, and but only Picard is allowed on the cube. El- Elnor does not like that. He doesn't want him to go alone, um, which will play out later on in the episode. Um, again, we're back on the cube. Soji wakes up. She starts going through all of her pictures uh, and um, her diary, all these things that she's had from her quote-unquote childhood, and she scans them. This confused me at first, but then I realized what it was all saying. Uh, it was saying every object was only uh, 37 months. I was mistaking it at first, trying to say, like, the subjects in the picture were 37 months, but then I was getting... Then I realized, oh, no, each object has been only around for 37 months. Right, she was aging them, yeah. So uh, once I understood that, I was like, okay, I, I get it more. I was like, I was being a little bit of an idiot uh, in that scene. Uh, and obviously this causes her a lot of distress. She rips up one of her pictures. Uh, she's kind of torn everything out and around and her quarters look completely uh, a mess. Um, then at this time, Picard beams aboard and, uh, he's getting flashbacks of the Borg. The cube is kind of, kind of waking up, but not really waking up. It's more waking up the memories of, uh, that he's had. Uh, and it's really kind of disrupting him. Uh, and some, Borg wake up uh, and they actually catch him as he's about to fall, but he's thinking they're taking him to be assimilated. And and Hugh and you and I were talking about this before we started uh, recording. Hugh said they're not trying to hurt you. They're trying to make sure you don't fall. And just that it almost like de-aged the actor to when he was on Next Generation because he had the same timbre of voice. Uh, it just sounded so much like from those earlier episodes of Next Generation. And it was just a very kind of heartwarming scene to see these two characters reunited. Oh, yes. I loved that. I'm, as soon as we saw Hugh and then when Picard says, I'll take a friendly face and they hugged, I was just like, all the feels. Yes, absolutely. All the feels. I loved everything. And then I was like, come on, no handrails on these things? <laughs> Look how high that is. And then I also just wrote down Spellbound by Patrick Stewart's um, performance. Yes. And and again, that kind of goes back to what I, what I was saying earlier is, okay, you may not like certain things about this. And I, and I get it. I believe Jeremy did say in his video that, uh, his performance is, is, is good in this. Uh, it's everything else he doesn't like. Okay. But then if you're even, you're enjoying his performance, then this is not complete trash. Like this does not invalidate the show at all. I I mean, and that's, what's very much sold this show is, is Patrick Stewart's performance. Everyone, you know, that's been complaining that it's not focused on him enough. I still don't understand where that criticism's coming from. He has been glowing in this. And although I, it, it, it's hard for me in my mind to reconcile the way he sounds in Next Generation and in the movies to how he sounds now, just because I don't like the fact that he's as old as he is and he's got that kind of oldness creeping into his voice. It's still spellbinding to watch him on there and to have gone back into the character so flawlessly after 
what, 30, almost 30 years, if not 30 years of, of gap in between. It's just it, he was born to play that character and will always be that character. Um, so we jump back to Soji and Narek, and she's telling Narek of her of revelation. And he is uh, telling her about this um, meditation, Romulan meditation that can open Soji's mind. Um, but it is uh, um, only for Romulans. It is not meant to be used by, uh, in fact, the one Romulan calls them round ears uh, later on in the episode. But uh, that he's going to use this method to help her um, figure out what her dream means and what all of this means, because these pictures and these items, they've all been around for only three years, meaning she's only been around for at least three years. Um, we also see some of the, re, uh, as I mentioned earlier, we see some of the reclaimed Borg are getting dermal regeneration. And this is also a very powerful scene, too. This is Hugh taking Picard kind of around the Borg cube. And um, there's one in particular that's getting kind of regeneration around his eye, although he still is missing his eye, like he finally gets his the brow of his eye back and the, the kind of emotion that that character has when he sees that eyebrow back is again, it's a, a little bit of a tearjerker moment. It, it is playing at the heartstrings and a very well, uh, and powerful scene. And, um, this is also kind of getting Picard to come to acceptance of being a former Borg himself, uh, being Locutus and, uh, now seeing them not as monsters, but now as victims. And I think that this was what the article was trying to say, that it, it fixed that problem that he had with the Borg in First Contact. Uh, I don't necessarily think it was a problem in First Contact, as it was him seeing them as complete monsters, but now with age, with wisdom, with seeing Seven of Nine, with reuniting with Hugh, with seeing what they've done on this Borg cube, with the reclaimed uh, Borg or the XBs, he is now seeing the, the who them for who they really are and their victims. Now, in First Contact, it was just the Borg. It wasn't anyone that they were able to save from, uh, you know, assimilation. So it's a complete different scenario in that sense. Um, I don't know if you had any thoughts on this scene. No, I still just continue to just... You know, watching Patrick Stewart and the actor who plays Hugh, and I was just all the feels. I love it. I love watching them together, and especially the actor who plays Hugh. And I really should have written down his name. He looks so good. Yes. And yes. it just took me right back to that. And that was one of my favorite episodes in the Next Generation. Yeah. And I just, I just liked everything about it. And he even referenced that episode himself when he, he said, we call ourselves XBs now because a, a new name can be a path to a new life. Yes. Because Jordy and Beverly named him Hugh. Yeah. And, and it was, um, it, it was just, it was such a great moment. And again, the very respectful of the canon, respectful of what's come before. And, uh, I, I like that moment as well. I didn't necessarily catch it as that, as that callback, but it makes perfect sense. It, it felt familiar uh, for sure. And, uh, and also kind of Hugh going, you know, if we have you as a, as an advocate for us, maybe we can be actually seen as citizens of the Federation versus monsters. Cause, uh, like you mentioned, they don't really, seems like they don't really go to any other planets. They're all kind of contained on this board cube. And so they don't really get to go out because if they go out, people are just going to see them as 
Borg and therefore discriminate, attack, potentially kill. So it's safer for them to stay in this confined space and not see anything of the outside uh, galaxy because uh, it's safer. And if, you know, someone like Picard, who was Locutus, who came back, respected Admiral, uh, can advocate for them, maybe it can lead to a better life. Um, so we have um, uh, Rios is still tending to Rafi and uh, they are pondering why Soji's still alive. Um, that, that there's got to be a reason why they still are, um, have her alive. And I think that they, even this, uh, you, you know, you were taught, we were talking about the timeline that I think at this point they even said a month. Um, if I'm remembering correctly from that conversation that they have, uh, why would they keep her alive for a month? And so that means that they, at least in space have been traveling for about a month. Uh, I would think that everything that happened with Dodge on earth was a month ago, Whereas everything in the Borg cube has been about two weeks or maybe a month. I, I don't know. It just gets really weird when uh, Hugh mentions um, that Narek uh, has a, had expressed interest, you know, in her two weeks ago. Um, Soji and Narek go to the meditation ch- chamber for the Zal- Zalmak. Uh, he and this was a point I, I, I didn't put in my notes, but. She asks again about his real name and he doesn't tell her um, and that's his secret in this scene. And again, it goes back to that. Everyone uh, has a secret, whether they know it or not. This is the start of what I feel like is is Narek's secret. Um, he uh, gives her his uh, real name, which is uh, Rayan, if I'm saying it correctly. Um, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce it. I just wrote it down from the subtitles. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think that's what that's what I wrote down from, too. Um, and they start showing he starts to show, um, uh, you know, her how to do the, the meditation. Uh, and we're back with Soji's dream. And we see that Rizzo is kind of supervising from an undisclosed location on the Borg cube. Uh, and then uh, we have Hugh and Picard arriving at um at Soji's quarters and they're seeing everything kind of disordered and he's trying, they're trying to locate her, but all of a sudden it's, she's hidden because of being in that meditation chamber. It's kind of acted like a, I would assume like a Faraday cage or something that, you know, at least something that's like a blackout spot where no one can uh, track anybody. Um, well, and they're Romulans. They have cloaking devices. I'm sure they put up something. Right. Right. And, uh, so we I, and I kind of like how this scene plays out as well. I like kind of how Narek is guiding her through this meditation and explaining what each part of the path that she's on means. Uh, I didn't have them all written down, but it, it was very, very fascinating. Um, so she goes through her dream. She, you know, recognizes some things. Uh, he gets her to work past the point where she keeps waking up and she sees um, herself on the table. Kind of I wrote down Pinocchio because that's kind of what she looks like. Um, and then she look and he has her look up and we see, uh, red moons, uh, two moons up in the sky. And this is the location of the nest. And at this time, that's where, uh, Rizzo is immediately going, okay, I need to find what system this is in, uh, whoever she reaches out to in the Tao Shiar. Uh, and this part kind of hurts me a little bit. And I, and I think this is what reveals kind of Narek's true secret that he couldn't even admit to himself because he leaves her in there to die um, with uh, I call it a red mist poison first, but then he reveals it's radiation. But you he actually has tears in his eyes like he's not 
it's not that he wants to do it, but he has to do it. Like he even says, you're not real. And, and so he's trying to reconcile his own feelings for her versus his mission. And it's, uh, he's having a hard time, but he's still following through with it. He's Romulan through and through, you know, he's disregarding his feelings for her, for the mission. And, uh, and I wrote down uh, that, you know, this is Soji beginning to activate uh, kind of question mark because she starts pounding through the floor and and tears up the metal, uh, jumps through. Uh, and that's when she kind of shows back up on the uh, the radar, essentially. And Hugh and Picard start going after her. Um, now, I, I wrote this down. I don't know if you caught it or I don't know what this means, but. They run past a former XB and the XB calls goes Locutus. And I think I think that was just in there as a call out. OK. Yeah, it seemed it seemed a little I don't know, because it was like a one thing like it was almost if you weren't paying attention, you could miss it really quick. Um, so I don't know if it was really meant to be anything or like you said, if it's just kind of a call out. Um but it was it was definitely interesting. And uh, we have them unite with Soji. Picard is uh, explaining kind of like, I know what's going on with you. You need to come with me uh, to live and uh, I will explain it all to you. And uh, she decides to go ahead and go with them. Um, they get to and this is where my notes kind of get a little short because I was all kind of running pretty quick together. Uh, they're being chased by the Romulans. Uh, like I said, this is Narek using that earpiece for the first time to kind of say, we need to stop them. We've got, you know, to, to take them out. Um, Hugh is helping them to escape and uh, they get them to the queen cell, which I thought was a interesting thing because we never uh, have ever explored that on a board cube. And uh, it kind of makes me wonder, like in I don't know how familiar you are with the Alien franchise, but um, the xenomorphs in that like there is a queen and uh, produces the eggs and everything. Now, if one of the drones uh, gets like separated uh, from a hive or something like that, they can end up developing into a queen themselves to propagate the, the species I'm wondering if within a Borg cube, if there's possibly that potential there as well. Do you have any thoughts? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. I, I wondered, you know, kind of along those lines. I also wondered if it's just there, but it's secret so the queen can go wherever she wants, whenever she wants. You know, I wondered, do the Borg have, you know, what I want to say, like ones that are set to become queen, but are kind of in stasis somewhere. And then, you know, this one dies. So let's activate the next one and send her to wherever. I just, I wondered all kinds of things. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could very well be. And as you know, we've referenced first contact enough. Um, we know that the board queen was on that board cube, uh, before they go back, uh, and pa- into the past. Um, it does make me wonder if like, yeah. And of course that ended up also, uh, it's the same actress. It wasn't maybe necessarily the same board queen, but, uh, Alice Krieg played the board queen in the finale for, uh, Voyager. Uh, and so it was kind of set up very much the same as the same Borg, uh, does. Yeah. Do, do certain Borg cubes have that potential where if, uh, they're maybe, uh, separated from the collective, not completely, but in a way that they need to maybe have a queen. They have the ability to create a queen or transfer the queen to that cube. 
um, it's very interesting. It was so as even like Picard, like didn't know about it, but knew about it as soon as he entered it because of his uh, recollection. And even Hugh uh, said like, yes, I didn't know about it, but it's like the cube told him about it because of being a former Borg. Um, so they have this kind of, I'm going to just call it a trans map. Cause I don't remember the exact name for it. Um, spatial trajector. Yes, that's it. And it has a range of up to 40,000 light years, which was very interesting. Also, where was this in Voyager? Uh, yeah, right. Wouldn't that have been very helpful? Uh, but even, I think Hugh made a comment that this happened, um, uh, this could have potentially happened even after the events of Voyager. It was once they assimilated the Sicarian race, uh, which is not one that I'm familiar with. If it's from Voyager or if it's from actually, you know what? That may have been something uh, in Voyager. I would have to revisit. I'm remembering something about how they were trying to get back uh, quicker to, and it was, I think it would deal with around the season finale with how they were going to try to get back quick, uh, quicker to the uh, alpha quadrant. But, um, he was set, even says like, yes, the, it was the Sicarian race. Once they assimilated them, that's how they developed the technology. Um, and so they set the coordinates for, uh, I'm going to get the name of the planet wrong, but Nepeneth, um, which I wrote down Riker. Um, cause they would, there's, if if Picard's going to pull a name out of a hat like that, there's got to be a good reason why. Um, and so they also find out Eleanor is not on the ship anymore. He is actually on the Borg cube. He uh, saves Picard uh, and um, Eleanor says he's going to stay behind. And there's this nice little exchange. I didn't write it all down, but like Picard saying, I'm not going to leave you again. And Eleanor appreciating just him saying it, uh, that that issue that Elnor had with him, uh, when he arrived on, um, Vashti, uh, was basically kind of, this is what he wanted to hear when they had their conversation about the mission. And, uh, Picard has openly now acknowledged it, that he doesn't want to ever abandon him again. Um, and Elnor appreciates it and says, no, you know, my blade is pledged to you. Uh, I'm going to stay here and give you guys the uh, time to escape. And that's basically right about where the episode ends. Um, yeah. Cause it, it ends with Elnor's one liner. <laughs> oh yes. Uh, please choose to live. Yeah. <laughs> Which I, I, I love that line. Uh, and uh, that was another cool sequence when he takes out the two Romulans that actually show up in the queen cell and, uh, and Hugh is doing, he goes, well, you know, it's going to take me a few minutes to hide the, the, queen cell and he's like i won't need a few minutes <laughs> so i, I kind of like that line i really i really do like eleanor even though uh, i think he's kind of taken a little bit of a backseat uh he is one of my favorite new characters uh i want to definitely see more with him involved um but yeah the episode ends and we do see from the kind of the previews for the next episode that um this is where Riker and deanna are going to kind of show up for an episode so i'm really excited for next week's episode um so overall, again, I really liked this episode. I felt like this was kind of everything coming to a head. Um, we're reached the over the halfway mark of the season now. So we're kind of coming into the end game of what this season has been all about. It's brought our characters together. Um, we have Picard and, and uh, Soji now united. Uh, Picard's going to explain to her what's going on. Uh, we have the Romulans that are kind of in possession of the information that they need or that they want. 
Um, we have kind of Rios and, and the crew of the La Serena kind of in the lurch right now. Uh, we still have plenty of mystery. Uh, we still don't know why the synths were banned. What's kind of completely going on with the Borg cube? Um, but what I feel did like, Commodore O show Agnes? Right. Yes. And uh, so I feel like our our next see. And again, again, I think the people that have been complaining about the pacing, um, this has been what all that pacing has been set up for. And now our final uh, three episodes of the of the season are all going to be we're answering the rest of the questions we've set up for you. We wanted to to really flesh out this story. Uh, we really wanted to build these characters up and make you understand these characters. Um, and like like I even said, uh, it would have been wrong for them to basically go from episode two to activating Soji and Soji's all aware and then doing all these, you know, great things or impossible things for the rest of the season. They waited over halfway through for her to discover kind of her origin, uh, for her to kind of activate and start questioning things that she's still, even at this point where she's at at the end of that episode, she still doesn't know everything that's going on. And uh, we're not getting this character like Dodge in the first episode. It was just doing all these amazing things, which even in that episode, I didn't quite hate because they, you know, had that self-contained in, in episode one. So I think um, overall for this episode, it, it I know I've rated a lot of these episodes really high. So I, I, again, people might just not really think I'm actually being critical of it, but it's a 4.5 out of five for me. There were just some writing things that we've talked about that I wasn't huge, a huge fan of, but, uh, I felt like we've, you know, had a culmination of all of our events that everything that we've had take, take place, uh, has, uh, played out and been explained for the most part. Um, enough that now we're moving into an end game that I'm very excited to see where it goes and, uh, what they're going to do with it. And, uh, again, I, I I'm loving the show. I, it has some minor issues, but not enough for me to just go out and say it's, it's trash. Yeah, I'd agree with all of that. And I'd probably go ahead and give this one a 4.5 as well. I just, again, I was so spellbound by Sir Patrick Stewart's acting performance in this, I, all of his haunted reactions yes. to remembering being tortured on the board cube and going back, his reun, um, reuniting with Hugh. I, I loved all of it. There was a lot of good stuff in this episode, but I'm still upset with the EMH, EMH medical hologram explanation. I, I need something I need for them to find out that she killed him and for Rios to feel betrayed or something like something has to happen with that for me to be okay with that. And, you know, and of course I said it, you know, I said it with, with last week's uh, episode. I, I have a real feeling that maybe considering kind of the previews we saw, um, for next week's episode that, uh, we, we might, we might get there. Um, like I said, Elnor picked up on something not quite being right with her, uh, we're going to have Rios, Rafi, uh, Agnes, uh, and hopefully Elnor, um, on, on the La Serena trying to get to Picard, uh, and during that time of what, however long, or if it's in an episode or two episodes, however long they want to take them to reunite, um, that, that will come up at that point. Cause they're going to have a lot of alone time and they're going to be just focusing on trying to get to Picard and, 
that's possibly where things are going to unravel. Because we even saw, uh, I didn't write it down in my notes, but even Girardi was trying to kind of do some plans of her own on how to get onto the board cube. And it's like, she still had some other secret type of mission, um, and uh, to do with on the board cube. And since it didn't quite work out that way, uh, there's something more to what she's got to do. And I think that that will hopefully be addressed within at least the next two episodes. Yeah. All she's right. probably got to go kill Soji. <laughs> well, and I think that I think, yeah, I think that that's, um, Regardless, I think that is part of her final mission is is to kill Soji. Uh, And it was probably one of the reasons why she was trying to figure out a way to, like, get on the board cube without going through the open way of doing it like uh, that they ended up doing um, to maybe somehow secretly get in there and take out Soji. Um, This ended up being a pretty long episode. Uh, I don't think we're going to end up doing any movie review today, uh, but... Uh, I want to thank you again for for coming on. I've been really enjoying these uh, reviews and uh, I think I'm going to put out a poll on Twitter and Facebook to see if we can't get you on more regularly other than for other than uh, Star Trek. I I know we've been talking about doing uh, Clone Wars and stuff and we just haven't really we've watched them, but we really haven't. We've spent so much time on Star Trek that uh, it's really not left a whole lot of room for doing uh, Clone Wars justice. Uh, but I know you're not in the horror stuff, so we'll try to, you know, if we can integrate you more and people are liking, uh, you on the show, uh, which I can't see why they wouldn't, um, we can get you. I in certainly on... hope so. <laughs> <laughs> get you on some, for some movie reviews. Uh, I know we, other than the horror stuff, you and I have fairly similar taste on films. So, uh, we'll, we'll see what we can do if, or maybe some other shows that we want to talk about. But again, thanks for coming on and, uh. We look forward to having you on next week as well when we when we revisit uh, episode seven. So thank uh, you. All right, guys. Uh, if, again, uh, we are actually three followers away on Twitter from 2000. So that's once we hit that 2000 mark, we'll be doing our giveaway. Um, we want to make sure we get um, a rating and review on iTunes. If you're following us on iTunes, please uh, follow us on Facebook. And um, again, you can follow us on Twitter's at critics, not uh, critics NT cynics. Uh, and of course, on Facebook, it's just Critics Not Cynics Podcast. Uh, you can follow the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, um, Google Play, Castbox, uh, whatever service you use. So uh, we will look forward to talking to you next time.